Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Tens of thousands of people have been killed and tortured in prisons run by Syria's President Bashar al-Assad, and many tens of thousands of civilians have been maimed or killed by indiscriminate regime military attacks since 2011. The reality of these barbaric atrocities is well known. But common knowledge and even detailed journalism isn't enough to sustain criminal charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. In any court of law, standards of evidence are high and direct connections between individual actions and resulting crimes against particular people must be documented and proven. That is why activists inside Syria and around the world are working right now to acquire regime documents, preserve witness and victim testimony, and build strong legal cases for prosecuting those who have committed atrocities on all sides of the messy Syrian conflict. And prosecutions don't have to wait until the fighting is over inside Syria. The well-documented killings of American citizens in Syria opens members of Assad's inner circle to prosecution for murder and conspiracy right now under existing U.S. law, says Ambassador Stephen J. Rapp. But keep in mind, this makes these individuals also responsible for murder under American law, because the murder of an American citizen is murder first degree under the laws of the United States. This opens up the possibility of a case by the Human Rights and Special Prosecutions Division of the, of, of the U.S. Department of, of Justice. Today, we'll hear from Ambassador Rapp, the former U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice and now a Global Prevention Fellow at the Simon Skiot Center for the Prevention of Genocide, about how he and others are preparing to bring Syria's war criminals to justice. And first, we'll hear from New Yorker journalist Ben Taub, whose groundbreaking articles on the Assad regime's crimes against civilians and hospitals brought Syrian atrocities to the attention of the American public. After this... This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. And now, here is Ben Taub speaking at an August 2nd forum hosted by the Washington Institute. So in the past four years, a group of war crimes investigators um, who formed a group called the Commission for International Justice and Accountability have smuggled over 600,000 Syrian government documents out of the country. These came from security intelligence facilities that had been captured um, by rebels, and uh, those rebel commanders knew that the Sija had investigators on the ground who were ready to receive documents. Um, and so when these facilities were overrun, they would call up one of the Sija operatives who would then go in, box everything up, uh, all evidence together, so that it could later be sifted through by lawyers in Europe. Um, bury it in the ground or in caves or hide it in abandoned homes until it was possible to move these documents across international borders um, through very complex negotiations and occasional smuggling routes. And they have amassed this enormous quantity of evidence, which then um, a a large team of international lawyers and translators um, and analysts has gone through, and they've built a case against the Syrian government, the first of several cases that they're building, which focuses on crimes in detention. And they, using these documents, which come from both Assad's highest level security committee, um, as well as distant provinces, uh, they have been able to trace and rebuild the chain of command 
and uh, and use this chain of command to link um, the systematic torture and murder of tens of thousands of people in these detention facilities to a policy crafted by Assad's highest level security committee, approved by the President Assad himself, and uh, then returned for implementation through mid and low level security agents. Um, so this highest level security committee that I'm talking about is called the Central Crisis Management Cell. And it was started by, it was formed by Assad in uh, March 2011 in response to the ongoing protests. Um, the meeting minutes, uh, the, the, the document that references the earliest meeting of the crisis cell suggests that it was formed on March 27th, 2011. And so Assad appointed um, to this committee um, his brother, Maher al-Assad, um, he appointed uh, the heads of the four security agencies, military intelligence, air force intelligence, political security, and general or state security. Um, the head of the National Security Bureau, which was the body that coordinated these four intelligence bodies um, historically since, uh, since the rule of his father. He also appointed the Minister of Interior and the Minister of Defense. So the, uh, each of these men, um, and a few other ad hoc members, each of these men presides over his own chain of command and coordinated their responses and shared arrest lists and shared information uh, down uh, passing then the orders that they crafted and which, uh, or the policies that they crafted, um, then were approved by Assad and then sent back to them for implementation as orders through these multiple parallel chains of command into the distant provinces so that um, everyone had the same information and was uh, working towards the same coordinated ends. There was an obsession with coordination. You would find um, each province, each of the 14 provinces, had its own security committee, which would then uh, was made up of roughly the equivalents of the crisis cell in each province. And these men would then um, pass their meetings and reports directly up the chain, and they would be getting meetings and reports from uh, from the from the districts and from the sub districts to the extent that. There's a there's a, a document link where you find in in one of the documents I was going through if, while working on this story, um, there's a reference from one of the heads of the crisis cell. He gets a report from uh, 350 miles outside of Damascus in an obscure um, road near Derizor between Derizor and Hasaka province, um, and it's a, a report from an intelligence agent who says that they have found. Uh, a, a piece of graffiti that says down with Bashar on a water pipe um, near the road, 350 miles from Damascus. And this is sent to the head of, you know, one of the members of the crisis cell who then sends back instructions to find the perpetrator of this crime. And they spend a month looking for him and then send back, you know, sorry, we tried, but we couldn't find him. Um, so this is how, how linked the, and how well informed the guys on the top were uh, to the crimes happening on the ground. The crimes, uh, you know, the crackdown at first, um, I'm not going to go through the history of, of, of the crackdown. Um, you know, you all know the system of oppression uh, that followed in the, in the early months, um, the targeting of protesters for arrest and detention. But, but the case focuses not just on the, what happened in those arrest and detention facilities, but the actual policy that targets certain categories of people who, who were then tortured and murdered in these facilities. And this policy came from uh, a meeting of the crisis cell on August 5th, 2011, for which the CJA has the meeting minutes and has them not only in original form, but also referenced in other documents, communications, as they were sent down the chain of command to these different provinces as orders for implementation. Um, this uh, 
policy um, was uh, targeted certain categories of people for arrest and interrogation. It, it, it targeted protest organizers, and, and this is a direct quote, uh, those who tarnish the image of Syria in foreign media. And um, so uh, you have then w- w- the crimes against humanity that then follow are, um, are that in the course of the implementation of this repressive but not necessarily criminal plan, the crimes occur, and uh, you know, Ambassador Rapp will talk more about command control responsibility. But in international law, essentially, international criminal law takes into account the fact that the highest level perpetrators are really present at the scene of the crime, but they are responsible for the systematic and widespread atrocities perpetrated by their um, subordinates. Um, once uh, there was a, a great system of pressures, the last line of the targeting policy in the crisis cells instructions instructed um, mid-level security agents to supply to the head of the National Security Bureau a list of names of security agents who appeared irresolute or unenthusiastic in performing their duties. And so they had to get results. And so what you find when you interview, as there have been thousands of detainees who have survived, have been interviewed by the UN Commission of Inquiry, uh, hundreds have been interviewed by the CJA. Um, I focused on, in, for narrative purposes on one detainee named Mazen al-Hamada who suffered immeasurably, whose t- a testimony happens to connect uh, the databases not only of the, C- the CJA's regime documents but also uh, to the Caesar files, which you'll hear more about soon um, from Hospital 601, where he was detained and tortured further. But the, in the course of these interrogations uh, of detainees who were kept for months uh, and sometimes years in absolutely inhumane conditions, um, conditions with, um, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 sometimes people held in a single solitary confinement cell for weeks at a time, um, conditions where in a 10-meter by 3-meter room there might be more than 100 people living uh, together for months and months. People would die of suffocation. People would die uh, from various diseases going on, going around the facilities. People would die when guards would arbitrarily abuse them and their wounds wouldn't heal and they would get infected. Um, and And then... They would eventually, after however long it took the guards to get through each detainee, they would be taken to a room specifically for interrogation. And these interrogation committees, the joint investigative committees, are, are, were part of the crisis cells plan as well um, from the meeting minutes. Um, once in interrogation, uh, they would be interrogated over um, the uh, various questions um, listed in the uh, targeting policy of the crisis cell. Um, itself, and uh, when people wouldn't uh, admit to committing various crimes that they hadn't done, um, for instance, Mazen was a protest organizer. Um, he admitted to having organized protests after his legs were burned by cigarettes. Uh, he admitted to sending videos of protests to Al Jazeera. Um, uh, again, after being further tortured. But that was insufficient because of the system of pressures put on these security agents. They needed larger results, and they needed to be able to create this sort of veneer of a judicial process, which meant a coerced confession system to much more serious crimes. So he was tortured in ways that I don't think I should describe here, but are in the article if you want to read it, um, uh, to, to the point where he admitted to terrorism crimes that he hadn't done. And this happened to hundreds and thousands of um, uh, detainees across the country. Um, Because if the intelligence agents 
doing these interrogations didn't get results, then they themselves would end up in the cells. And that often happened. There were numerous intel uh, intelligence agents who became sieges witnesses um, because they too were, were tortured in detention um, for having not uh, carried out their duties with enough force. Um, I'll, I'll close with um, just saying that so the next sort of step in the process was uh, once they had been coerced into confessing to these crimes, um, after a few more months of detention, they would be forced to thumbprint uh, write-ups of their confessions. Um, often people were thumbprinting these documents while they were blindfolded. Um, they had no chance to read what they were confessing to. And those who were released were often released because sympathetic judges took pity on them. That's the case with Mazen. Um, he, uh, he showed the judge the you know, the signs of torture all over his body, um, his broken ribs, his, uh, his emaciated um, uh, torso, and uh, the judge took pity on him and let him go. But other judges would then send them to prisons uh, where they would be. Now, because they've confessed to these crimes, they have um, entered a, ju a judicial process uh, for which they can be detained, de detained, you know, legally for however many years. Um, so this is the sort of the sieges case that they built from internal regime documents um, and from hundreds of witness interviews. Um, but the, the, the key thing in terms of prosecution is pinning these crimes on individual criminal responsibility, which they can trace through those documents up straight up to the very top. That was journalist Ben Taub. And now, here is Ambassador Stephen J. Rapp. Uh, we've had a war going on. Uh since the uprising became a conflict in late, uh, in late 2011 uh, in Syria for, for almost five years. And, and hundreds of thousands, indeed millions, uh, have taken uh, uh, to, the, to, the, to the seas, uh, have taken to the roads, have, have, have left uh, home and hearth, uh, left the places where they were formerly secure and are seeking refuge elsewhere. Uh, doing it not just because this is a conflict, and indeed all conflicts uh, 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 cause injury to the civilian population, uh, but this is, this is a, a conflict fought uh, with the commission of mass atrocities in a way that's made life in Syria for the vast majority of the, of the population simply intolerable and worth taking enormous risks. Uh, to escape uh, those horrors uh, uh, with, uh, with their families. Um, I really want to salute uh, Ben's uh, work uh, on these two stories in The New Yorker and, and worked uh, closely with him. I remember uh, visiting uh, Siege's former office in, in Brussels, and I think he was there for two weeks uh, poring over documents. Uh, if ever he wants to uh, end the career of journalist and become a prosecutor, I think he'd be a great, uh, a great asset uh, on any team. But uh, meticulously... Uh, putting together uh, the information that's there, which is, it's, as, as I said and, and as quoted by him, is, is frankly so much more overwhelming than the kind of evidence we had when we went after those that were responsible for the genocide in Rwanda or the mass atrocities uh, committed in, uh, in, in Bosnia or in other, in, in other crime scenes, atrocity crime scenes uh, uh, across the world. Uh, and the biggest evidence of it, and one that I continue to have contact with, uh, uh, is, is the evidence from the, from the so-called Caesar files. And I was pleased, actually, to see Caesar recently and see that he's in good shape, uh, that, frankly, he recently gave a 44-page statement uh, to a magistrate in a European country, that he's continuing to cooperate with, with accountability. Uh, but uh, I continue to salute his bravery and, and the bravery of all of these other individuals. 
uh, that have brought out this solid documentation. But his is uh, some of the most impressive that, that I've ever seen. I mean, he was a you know career police, uh, military police investigator who, who took pictures of crime scenes. And then in 2011, he's he's in this role together with a team of, of 10 others in photographing these scores and then hundreds of bodies uh, that are dumped at a hospital every day. And uh, during the course of the time from late 2011 until he defected in August of 2013 at uh, uh, great risk to himself and, and his family, his group took more than 50,000 photos. And these are photos, and, and many of you have seen some of them uh, on public display at the Holocaust Museum and at the U.S. Capitol and, and elsewhere. But they are incredible. And of course, the ones that are shown are often not the, the worst ones. I've, I've seen most of them and, 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 and gone through them. And they're people of, of all ages, uh, uh, most of them um, starved, but not just starved, uh, you know, with the eyes gouged and, and, and bones broken, uh, uh, skin uh, burned by chemical agents, uh, signs of scars where, where organs have been removed. Uh, people that were eviscerated uh, by the numbering system that was used. And the most amazing thing, the, the regime itself, the, the, the department sent orders that, uh, and medical professionals came down and held cards in front of each of the bodies with the, the number of the individual and this facility in which the individual was tortured to death and the number within that facility. Uh, and, and Caesar went up to his computer every night and, uh, and put all this in, uh, indexed by the date that it came from and the facility in which this person had, uh, had, had, had died. And, and by that numbering system, during that period, uh, more than 11,000 people were tortured to death in these facilities uh, in the Damascus area. That's just in the Damascus area. Institutions like 235, the, the Palestine branch, or 215, 216, associated with state security or military intelligence. And, uh, and since that time, some uh, 760 of them have been identified. And, and their families have come forth, and many of them are assisting law enforcement. I met some of the families, and they describe not knowing anything about what had happened to their, to the, often it was their son or their nephew. Uh, talked to some businessmen who are now in, uh, in the Istanbul area who were actually in construction business, and the, and the, and the son was making deliveries of, uh, or bringing, uh, bringing supplies to a, to a job site and picked up because he came from uh, Daraya, uh, which was known in the Damascus suburbs as, as an area that had a lot of rebels in it, and therefore... Uh, he ends up uh, tortured to death, and the next thing his parents see of him is, is an emaciated, uh, torn, and broken, uh, uh, broken individual. And so that's why. I mean, these, I remember talking to these guys. They said, well, we were able to keep doing our business until 2013, but eventually it just became impossible to live. That's why people have, 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 have taken to the road. And, and the people that ended up being killed... I, I, Taub, uh, ben Taub talked about the, uh, uh, our friend Mazen Alamada, who, who managed to survive, and I just saw him again uh, 10 days ago. He's, he's, he's doing well. He's continuing to fight this fight. He's one of the few people that wants to put himself forward uh, uh, publicly in, 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 uh, in news footage. He was working at that time with a documentary crew. I mean, he's still, he's still so thin and, and, and frankly, uh, broken that it almost seems like his arms are on, are, are on backwards, to be frank. 
but he continues to, to talk about his experiences. And he described how multiple times he, who was an oil engineer, you know, worked for Schlumberger or someone in the, in the oil business uh, in, in the eastern part of the country, who became a, uh, uh, a secular protester, who was actually on his way to deliver uh, uh, some milk formula uh, to the besieged people in, in Daria uh, at the time that, that, that he was arrested. Uh, he, he, he describes uh, just horrendous uh, situations that were happening inside the, the facilities, but then periodically amnesties would be announced, and the people that would be amnestied would be the jihadis uh, to go out and, and, frankly, reinforce ISIS and create this perception that Assad attempts to create that... Uh, uh, that it's the choice between the devil and the deep blue sea that we have to support him or the deep green sea in that case or, or ISIS and, and nobody else. But he's in fact, uh, by even his release policy, uh, emphasizing that, uh, the, that uh, you know, the real enemies are the, are the secular or the moderate uh, opposition in his country. Uh, ben didn't go on to talk about the, the bombardments. And, and of course, as, a, as an international prosecutor, it is easier, and, and indeed the case in terms of the detention facilities, uh, to the extent you had hold of the individuals in the intelligence service, all the way up to the top, to the president of the republic, to be frank, uh, and, and down through the chain of command into these facilities, uh, because these are state facilities, and because there's such great notice of what's going on in them, these would be among the easier cases ever prosecuted in international justice, to be frank. Cases involving bombardment are much more difficult because we know in a conflict where civilians are present uh, among insurgents that there's going to be civilian casualties. It's, it, it, it's unavoidable. But, uh, but in fact, the approach that the Syrians have taken has been so direct and so targeted towards civilian objects and humanitarian objects uh, that that case is, is actually also a very strong one. Uh, ben, in his, in his other article, uh, my, uh, cites my friends and physicians for, for human rights. I'm very pleased to be on their board, and they're doing great work in, in this area. Uh, they've documented the number of, of medical professionals killed, which has now reached more than 700 uh, by, by the regime. ISIS, on the other hand, 27, which to some extent, even though ISIS crimes tend to be much more visible to us, indicates to some extent the proportion of the crimes that we're talking about in Syria. That's not just ISIS, that's all rebel groups. That's all rebel groups. Well, indeed, I mean, the most recent information that they have on the, and you can see it on the website, because, of course, some of these killings of doctors are those people that are on the, in the Caesar photos and that have been arrested and tortured, people like Dr. Khan, the orthopedic surgeon from London who went to the Aleppo area to help and, and ended up uh, uh, murdered by the regime, as was found by a London coroner's jury, uh, not always in bombing. But in the bombings, there have been 291 attacks on medical facilities and personnel by Syrian government forces, and uh, 45 by Russian and Syrian government uh, uh, bombing raids uh, uh, together. 24 operations by the opposition. One has been documented uh, to be a coalition strike that uh, I'm sure they would argue unintentionally hit a, a medical facility. But of course, the way in which they're conducting it is also through a form of siege warfare, perhaps legal in the Middle Ages, but now a, a war crime. It is a crime to besiege a civilian area, to cut off uh, food and medical supplies, 
and certainly beyond cutting off medical supplies, of course, to uh, intentionally target uh, medical uh, ambulances. Indeed, I know Ben was describing how ambulances used to show their red cross or red crescent. Now they go around in muddy vehicles because they know <laughs> if they're in a white vehicle, and it's, it's known as the humanitarian uh, 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 mission, uh, uh, they're going to be among the first targets. And indeed, in, these, in, the, in this context, uh, it is so much more dangerous, frankly, to be a civilian, uh, to be a humanitarian actor, than it is to be a, a soldier or, or a rebel. Now we have uh, reports, uh, um, I don't know if you saw the report from my good friend Roy Goodman, who won the Pulitzer, and won a Pulitzer over reporting in Bosnia in 1993. He's, he's spent a great deal of time in Syria. He wrote on Sunday about the, what, what he read, and which many read, as the threat by, the, by, by Putin and by Russia uh, to employ the so-called Grozny rules in, uh, in regard to, to Aleppo. Basically a declaration, get out or you're all dead. And, uh, you know, and this is part of why they've announced uh, uh, with, uh, you know, it was sort of humanitarian fanfare that they were opening up uh, uh, these, uh, these four corridors uh, for people to leave. Uh, we know the history of, of, of these corridors, uh, the dangers of people being pulled uh, away from, the con from, from, from those that may be leaving, uh, families uh, separated, uh, the absence of a safe place to go even at the, at the end of the route. But it doesn't make any difference if it were an interstate highway lined by UN blue helmets with well-supplied dormitories at the other end uh, to, to make that kind of declaration and then to turn around and target everybody that doesn't leave with indiscriminate bombing or by unleashing brutal killers on the ground is murder, is a war crime, full stop. It's also extermination as a crime against humanity. And as we saw from Grozny and the large presence of, Chechen, of Chechens now in ISIS, it does not destroy terrorists, it creates them. And rather than establishing the rule of law, it fosters impunity and licenses a criminal conduct. It's unthinkable that anyone would believe that the Putin government was playing a constructive role in Syria or think that we could succeed against ISIS by making cause with Putin and Assad uh, to go against that group. Individual Russian leaders and commanders are now in danger of being charged as aiders and abettors of Assad's war crimes based upon the information from Physicians for Human Rights. But implementing Grozny rules and doing that kind of thing in Aleppo, formerly the largest city in Syria, would threaten to make them direct perpetrators in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Well, what does that all mean? Where are people are going to be held to account for these crimes? First of all, I want to note that the day of accountability will come. I'm not talking about going to the ICC. The ICC, as we know, the idea of referring it, supported by the United States, supported by 13 members of the UN Security Council in 2014. Uh, the referral to the ICC was blocked by, by Russian and Chinese vetoes. It doesn't require the, uh, uh, necessarily, though we'd much prefer it, an internationalized court or even a future Syrian court, though that's really what we want to see, a Syrian court broadly representative of the communities in Syria, uh, working with international partners. There's jurisdiction now to prosecute these crimes, and there are perpetrators that are now coming within range of prosecutors with the jurisdiction and the capacity to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to go after them. First of all, it's because of the documentation 
that has been brought out. And uh, uh, Ben has described the work of my good friends in CJA and their 600,000 pages, which is soon being augmented by several hundred thousand of additional pages that have recently left Syria. Other organizations are part of that as well. Close to a million pages of this kind of documentation. And it's quite impressive. When I was with Mazen the other day, by the way, we had uh, done a search on the documents. These are in written Arabic, which is not that easy to do optical character recognition with, to see if there was any mention in the 600,000 pages that have been scanned at Sija of Mazen Hamada, and we found the logbook of his arrest. His name, say, arrest him and certain of his friends. And he was quite moved to see that, and then suddenly uh, became emotional because he said, and all the friends arrested with me are now dead. I'm, I'm the only survivor. But it's an amazing thing to actually find <laughs> the documented order that, that began this. So, uh, and I know recently I was involved in the Habre case uh, in, in Africa where fantastically strong evidence was discovered uh, against uh, President Habre 10 years after he was overthrown of his hand on the torture instruments saying nobody should leave uh, or on the, tor the documents about the, about the torture. No one should be allowed to leave this prison alive. The strength of that evidence created finally the dynamic even to prosecute him, and he was recently sentenced for life uh, in prison by a, by a mixed court in Senegal, established with a partnership between the U.S. and the AU and the government of Senegal and the EU. So when you have strong evidence, it's impossible to ignore. You will find a way, but it's, but it's better uh, than that. One, there's jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction today, in countries where, where some of the victims were, were dual nationals or, or nationals. We see an example of that in the, though it was only a civil lawsuit, but it uh, certainly is, uh, uh, tells you what's coming. The, the case brought by my good friends, not CJO, but the Center for Justice and Accountability out of, uh, out of San Francisco in the case of Marie Colvin, an American citizen, one of the greatest journalists of her, of her age, uh, murdered in Syria on the 22nd of February, 2012. And it's 33-page uh, complaint, and I urge you to go to it, work closely with them. They mine the CJA documents. They've identified the responsible parties, Mahar al-Assad, directly responsible, the brother of President Assad, the head of the 4th Armored Division, General Ali Mamluk, uh, the head of in the Intelligence Directory, head of intelligence for the Ba'ath Party, directly responsible for her murder. They specifically located where this journalism center was and, and intentionally bombarded it, bracketed it, killed her and, and her French photographer, Remy Oakluck, and, uh, and of course uh, injured others that uh, are still with us in, in, in journalism. That gave rise to a lawsuit in American court under the, under the uh, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, uh, the extremely strong case. There's also witness testimony that directly ties these individuals, and we've been successful in relocating the families of those witnesses in, in, in other countries so that they're secure also to testify in, in, in other cases. But keep in mind, this makes these individuals also responsible for murder under American law, because the murder of an American citizen is murder first degree under the laws of the United States. This opens up the possibility of a case by the Human Rights and Special Prosecutions Division of the, of, of the U.S. Department of, of Justice that has already prosecuted people 
like Charles Taylor Jr. I was prosecuting Charles Taylor Sr. in The Hague. The U.S. attorney in Miami prosecuted Charles Taylor Jr. and sentenced him to prison for 97 years. So these are the kind of cases that can, can be made. The French, as well, who have an active investigation, as announced by Foreign Minister Fabius in January of 2015, can prosecute these individuals as well under their law, and they have an open investigation. There's also, of course, keep in mind, these individuals aren't turning up in Washington, <laughs> you know, and anytime soon, but this certainly creates a situation where there are more than 100 countries in the world where they can't safely go now until the day they die. But we also have perpetrators that are beginning to come out of Syria. Of course, many associated with the opposition. But as my friends friend at Sija have shown, and we're working with a number of European prosecutors, you'd be amazed at some of the torturers that are now among the refugee population and that can be identified and that are being pointed out by the survivors. Those are cases that can be prosecuted under present in jurisdiction. Crime committed elsewhere, if the perpetrator is present in your country, you can prosecute the crime. I was with the, uh, <laughs> at the EU Day Against Impunity at the end of May. The Dutch, who were the president of the European Council for the first six months of, um, of, uh, of 2016, uh, on the 29th of May, established the first European Day Against Impunity to salute the work of the European network. The United States is part of the European network. There are 32 countries whose prosecution units work in, in conjunction with each other. There are 14 of these prosecution units that have already successfully prosecuted persons for responsibility in the Rwandan genocide and other atrocities uh, committed abroad. And they're each working on Syrian cases today. So I want to be clear to, to those who, who might think that with the Syrian regime, this might be the way of the future, but that the massive crimes that they've committed, the crimes that have led to the greatest flow of refugees in human history, and indeed we have more people on the road as refugees than we had in World War I or World War II, 65 million today, and so many of them coming out of this conflict zone, the, uh, that the day of justice is arriving, and those who commit these crimes will face consequences. And for those victims and those people that are working to help document these crimes, who are so discouraged because it often seemed that the world would not stand with them as they suffered the bombs, as their eyes were gouged out, as their children were hacked to death, as their tortured bodies were returned to their parents, as, as, as occurred and as shown in the Caesar rolls, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the early part of the, of the uprising, that those individuals, I think, need to take heart that justice is possible, that the evidence is being preserved, and that they should come forward and assist investigators and prosecutors so that we can begin to deter these atrocities and increase the chances that those that would otherwise would take flight will be safe with their families and their homes. <laughs> This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.